0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 92. As years go, 1824 was one for the history books. Not that the others weren't, but 1824 is one of those seminal 12 months in Southern African history. It's the year Sharka's main MP South had a disastrous campaign attempting to subjugate the Mpondo. Despite their training and their military prowess, Sharka's Amabuto were not invincible. But more importantly, it was the year that English traders set up their base in Port Natal and immediately altered the social, military and political landscape. Sharka was busy in 1824 with both conquest and raiding. His MPs, however, did not do well in what you would call their away games. The further they travelled from their main base, the more defective their logistics. And right now, Sharka had moved his main base to the Matlabatini plain north of the Mflatusi River along the Mfolozi. Later, he would moved south, but in 1824, it was near modern-day Ulundi. Supply lines for military endeavours are fundamental. Frederick the Great summed it up when he said an army marches on its stomach or well, more accurately, he said it marches on his belly, and no, it wasn't Napoleon who said that. Once a chief was defeated, the Amabuta had to remain in the field to quash any further resistance, and that meant feeding the men. If Shaka wanted to conquer territories, then he needed a quick, decisive battle, and that was his strategic intention. As his warriors ranged further, word got out that if you led them in a bit of a song and a dance, they'd give up and go home quite quickly. Shaka would predate on nearby chieftains. When the enemy avoided battle, he'd raid their cattle and women and children, and force the survivors into the forests and the mountains of Natal and Zululand. When they'd stripped the country, the Amabutho would head home, hungry and often suffering from exposure. If they were aiming at the mountains, this is where some of their victims rounded on them in counterattacks. In April 1824, Sharka's top commander. Laka Kaiangidi led an army south, skirting the foothills of the Drakensberg, then turning east into the valley of the Mzumfubu River. That was central Mpondo territory, and the Zulus were not invited. Waiting for them and well prepared was a man known for his military experience and deft battlefield tactics by the name of Faku Ka Inkonkush. His name sounds like a double tap execution. It's so dangerous and his name alone should have been a warning to Maitla kind Lady. Just a quick note about demography. There were fewer than a quarter of a million people living between the Imzumvubu and the Pongola rivers at this time. So a large army was a few thousand strong at most. And Imtlaka had three regiments, but Faku of the Impondo had his entire people. The Zulu Impi rolled over Faku's outermost cattle. They were in raid, not conquest mode. Things did not end well for the Zulus, and it was to become known as the Ama Batre Impi, the Melon Campaign. But more about what happened in a few minutes, when we return to the saga of sad Mpondo raid by Charcot. He was now eyeing the trade with the outside world as part of the growth of his power. He knew that Delagoa Bay was somewhat overtraded and too far away to service successfully. Furthermore, the Portuguese and their allies had tied up their routes inland already. He could not expand west because the Sutu people were too strong, and to the south, the Mpondo had cut off his access to the Cape. The Zulu king was acutely aware of the advantage of doing business with the English at the Cape, but accessing them was another matter. He had no ships. And so, this is where we return to last episode, because the ships came to him the Julia in which Henry Francis Finn arrived, the Salisbury of Commander King, and the Antelope under Lieutenant Francis George Fairwell. As the Amabete Aka'a Mellon Impey staggered home in May 1824, a 21-year-old adventurer called Henry Francis Finn and five companions had arrived at Port Natal. I explained what happened last episode, fighting off hyenas and then looking around for a way to reach Shaka. These two men, Shaka and Finn, were fated to find each other eventually, and what a story it is. But first, a large group of 20 prospective settlers sailed up to Port Natal in June 1824 on the brig called Antelope, led by Lieutenant Farewell, formerly of the Royal Navy. This veteran of the war against Napoleon had managed to set up a venture with J.R. Thompson and Company based in Cape Town. They wanted to launch a permanent trading post in the bay of Port Natal. Finn and Farewell were going to work together as the local agents for this company in securing ivory hides and grains from the Zulu. Yes, grains. The Amazulu, like many others on this coast, produced more food than they could eat at this point, and offered, traded the grains, which would include maize, which had only just arrived in southern Africa. I'll deal with Millis, maize, in one of the upcoming podcasts, because there's a great deal of research into how this food came to be grown in Africa. It's a fascinating story, as you can imagine. First, though, as comedian Eddie Izzard has explained, the new Port Natal traders needed a flag to claim protection from the British government. And we built up empires. We stole countries. That's, what you do. That's how you build an empire. We stole countries with the cunning use of flags. Yeah. You just sail around the world and stick a flag in. I claim India for Britain. And they go, you can't claim us, we live here. 500 million of us. Do you have a flag? (laughs) So Farewell and his pals duly set up a flagpole in June 1824 and raised the Union Jack and fired salutes, noting the day and scribbling in their logs and their journals. Following the somewhat presumptuous exercise, they petitioned the British governor in the Cape Colony demanding he annex this little port Natal. The governor was still Lord Charles Somerset, and he turned them down flat. What imperialists don't seem to realize is that when you take over someone else's territory, you have to spend money suppressing the local population. Lord Charles was under strict instructions to reduce expenditure, although he tended to have some sympathy for Farewell. So Finn and Farewell turned their gaze north. Now they had to ensure that Shaka agreed to their presence, or things would turn nasty very quickly, seeing that the empire wasn't interested. Oral tradition is full of what happened next, which took place in August 1824. That's when Shaka summoned Finn and Farewell to enter his new main residence, or Ikanda, also called Kwa Buluwao, which had shifted to the Matlabatini plain. It's close, as I said, to where Ulundi is today, a journey of around 233 kilometres from Port Natal. Finn and Farewell at this stage could not speak Zulu. But wait! When they arrived, sitting alongside Shaka at their first meeting was a man we met last episode. He was called Jakot Msimbiti. He was the man King had left for dead at St. Lucia near the lake the previous year after the boats overturned, remember him? And he was already a very important man in Zulu society because he knew things and Shaka knew that Jakot knew them. Jakot was not just an interpreter. By now the Zulu regarded him as a seer, a man of visions and advanced power. He spoke English and Dutch and Kroza and now Zulu and had somehow emerged from the sea like the white people. The traders arrived in their outlandish outfits, strange hair and skin colour, their fearsome firearms and even more shattering, the horses they rode on, which threw the Amabuta warriors into consternation. Sharker did not let on, but later he admitted to being astonished by the weirdness of these men. Of course, Jacot had briefed him about what he'd face, but still seeing is believing, and these four, the translator, the king, and two English traders, could begin talking business immediately. There was no hand-waving, signaling, and odd silences. That facilitated the business discussion, because this is what it was. This wasn't a cultural exchange event, kumbaya... Happy fireside sing-alongs, oh no, this was about mula, cash, power, and it was a subject dear to both Shaka and Finn and Farewell's hearts. The Tuli people were living in the Port Natal region, the Kele, their neighbours, and this situation had been like that since the late 18th century. The Kwabe had pushed these two peoples south earlier, and they'd been attacked by the Kwabe before the Zulu arrived on the scene. Tuli leader Dole is notorious in oral tradition, he used the stabbing spear long before Shaka and was known to impale children on posts when he was really angry. It was into the Tuli that Shaka's Yandani regiment had crashed at about this time. One of the survivors, by the name of Maguda, escaped the red-shielded Amabuto living with some of his people in the bush around the bluff in Port Natal, and they lived there in rough shelters. Maguda had a rather unfortunate end. He was eventually eaten alive by hyenas. A section of the Tuli decided that fighting Shaka was a waste of time, so they consured him, led by a man named Matubani Kajumbela. Shaka sent a special double column to help Matubani crush any further opposition, led by Undunas Magaie and Commander Makedama of the Langeni, whose name you may remember from earlier. The Tuli homesteads, as far afield as the highlands around Pietermaritzburg, were attacked and their cattle seized by Makidama's Impi. Meanwhile, Magae had hived off and marched along the coast, capturing cattle along the Ilovo River and the Kwa Mkobu Forest south of Port Natal. Shaka didn't fully trust Makidama and had prepared for possible treachery. Shadowing these two impies was a third under-trusted Induna Imtubeda Ka Imtumudi, who headed up the influential Ekuwileni Imtubela was collecting the cattle seized by Magae and was supposed to send the herds to Shaka, but Makidama then interceded and seized the cattle for himself. Let's just say he let the sight of so much treasure go to his head. Shaka ordered Umtubela to kill Makidama, and after much hustling the naughty Induna was cornered at Ihlungwini, a hill opposite Mapumula on the hills, just north of the Chigela River, above modern day Stanga. Akaa Kwadukuza. Kwaidokuza, by the way, means place of the lost person and got its name during Shaka's time. The labyrinthian size of his homestead there meant you could get lost in the maze of huts. There were so many. So, Makidama was killed as per Shaka's order, and the cattle returned. Zulu's storytellers, however, have an interesting aside about this event. Nandi, Shaka's mother, appears to have had a soft spot for Makidama and said after the killing... Why are you finishing off the house of Langeni, your own relatives? She often tempered his more extreme actions, and yet could be quite malevolent herself, as you'll hear in this series. It was about now that Shankar received word of what the violent Izzy had been up to around Port Natal. Last episode, I explained how these men of the Chlubi, with their red shields were feared and they had begun indulging in gratuitous violence. And so he called the leaders of the yendani to a meeting and then killed them, sparing one by the name of Makata. The rest of the Amabuta were dispersed, atomized, broken up, killed. Some fled north, some joined Inkatha of the Kwabe. Quite worryingly for Shaka's future, his half-brother Dingaan preferred to make peace with some of these yendani. That was going to have repercussions for Shaka and they weren't going to be to his advantage. So, this is where the Amabetre melon disaster comes into picture. By mid-1824, Shaka had been feeling far more secure, dispatching the Izi and and the Tuli. A large swath of territory was now under his control. From north to south, Tetua, the Mtetwa, the Kwabe, the Kwele, and the Tuli consered him. The Mkizi and the Satoli were in his ambit, while the Kunu and Tembe and the Batra had shifted out of his way to the west. Shaka eyed Faku Ka Inkungush of the Tembe with some malevolence. That Mpondo king who was such a well known military commander. There were some who suggested Shaka was also hunting Madikani of the Bakka, who we've met in an earlier podcast too. he had run away from Shaka and sought shelter from Faku. But the real reason, say so most oral and written historians, was that he was after Faku's impressive herd of cattle. Shaka put together what he thought was the ideal army under Mlaka, joined by the Pasimba Ubuntu under Mpangazita, Ka and Tumbata, the Nombamba, and the and Nduna Nomapela, and the Mbelebele Regiment under Kluana Ka and Klingalele. The army crossed over together into Natal, above where Greytown is today, opposite Msinga. They travelled close to the peaks of the Drakensberg, a scenic route, so to speak, then they turned south. Then east into Ponder territory, raiding cattle. They arrived in central Ponderland but came under heavy attack by Manke of the Bondos, who joined Faku fighting off the threat. And Laka had to send his reinforcements to fight off Mankle's aggressive warriors. They just managed to survive this battle, although exactly where it took place, we're not sure. From all descriptions, it's probably a few days march south of the Imzumkulu River. The surviving warriors turned around and headed back to Zululand, then ran out of food. They began eating the looted cattle, but had to return to Shaka with at least a few, so they were then forced to survive on scrabbling for the Amabetre melons lying around abandoned hamlets, as well as picking at roots and berries. Zulu legend has it that Farku Ka Ngungushi had an ace up his sleeve, his supernatural powers. The myths are grand! full of hyenas being summoned, which scoffed both men and cattle, and then chased the Zulus back across the Tugela, imbued with Farku's magic. However, it is true that the hyenas ate upon the bones of dead Zulu warriors who were felled by the Mpondo. And it was this battered and emaciated force that bumped into Henry Francis Finn on the beach north of Port Natal in May 1824. So eventually Finn was joined by farewell, as you heard, but Whites had long visited the shores of Port Natal and were incorporated into local life, similar to what had happened amongst the Amakosa. For example, the survivors of the Grosvenor wreck of 1782, which took place just off Port St. John's. Afterwards, an Englishwoman who survived was married off for the grand price of a snuff spoon to a man called Mbukwe. Later, she gave birth to a son, Mtingwani, he was the fair-haired grandfather of Mahaya Karnonkabana, an important oral history source whose stories have already featured in this podcast. There was also some in the Zulus called Masterik, a white man who was of Portuguese origin and lived amongst them. And there were many mestizos, mixed-race Portuguese-speaking traders, who had pitched up across Shaka's territory. But it was Finn and Farewell's arrival at Shaka's Emisi that created the biggest stir. According to Zulu oral historian Dinya, speaking to James Stewart, who's collected an amazing quantity of original Zulu oral histories, it went something like this. Finn convinced Sinkrila Kampipi of the Amagati tribe, part of the Kale, to message Shaka. That was after Sinkrila bumped into Finn while searching for one of his cows. He found all his women and children running away from the wild beast, a white man who was mounted on a horse. They said his hair was like cattle tails. Sincrela was eloquent and observant and described Finn further. He had an embange, which is a small grass basket that carries milk, that was very peculiar inasmuch as it shone. Finn carried a hip flask, we believe. And the gun he carried. Eventually Sincrela brought Finn to Magaie. We'd been raiding cattle for shocker around the Ilovo River, remember? And Magaie was shocked. Sincrela had warned him, saying he should not run away on seeing this monster. So Magaia called his regiments and set them on both sides of where he stood, just in case, and his wives and children and other relatives gathered behind the warriors. Finn arrived, mounted on a horse, hat on head, gun in hand, and indeed his hair looked like cattle tails. "'All present were moved with wonder and awe, "'so much that the regiments shuffled back as far as the fence,' Dinya explained later. "'Once everyone had been reassured, "'Finn was asked to take off his hat and twirl, "'or at least turn around "'so people could get a good look at this cattle tail. "'Then Magaya relaxed and ordered an ox to be brought for slaughter. "'Finn asked to be allowed to kill it. "'An unusual request. Magaya agreed.' Finn warned everyone about the sound they would hear, then he shot the ox and it collapsed. It was a report like a thunderclap, said Dinya, the Zulu storyteller. It was only after passing this test that Finn Farewell, his father-in-law Jan Pettersen, along with at least two other traders, were allowed to head on to meet Shaka. They marched with a detachment of 40 men, watching them on the way to Kwabuluwayo on the Malabatini Plain. But it wasn't easy going, these 233 kilometres, probably more, because it was in the days before roads. Finn wrote that it was a 300-mile trip. Old man Pettersen, who was 63, slowed everyone down and it took just over two weeks to overland from Port Natal to coie They traversed bogs and crossed numerous rivers and followed tracks and paths. It was a circuitous route. Visiting most of the homesteads that had conserved Cinque As they approached Kwa Bulao, Farewell estimated there were between eight and nine thousand people gathered at Shaka's great place waiting for them. His subjects appear to treat him with such submission and respect as to rank him far above any chiefs I believe known in South Africa. Finn was deeply impressed and said that this most exciting scene, surprising to us, who could not have imagined that a nation termed savages could be so disciplined and kept in order. It's a remarkable moment, but for some reason, these visitors found it difficult to describe Shaka other than what he was dressed in. Finn wrote, On his forehead he wore turban of otter skin with a feather of the crane in the front full two feet long, long earrings made from sugar cane dried, carved round the edge with white ends of an inch in diameter, for which the loose part of the ear is cut to admit it. Sharker wore monkey and ganet skins, twisted, appearing like the tails of animals. These hung half down his body from his shoulders. Around the ring on his head were a dozen bunches of the red feathers of the Luri, tastefully tied to thorns which were stuck in his hair and around his arms were white oxtails cut down the middle so to allow the hairs to hang around and around his waist a petticoat or bear shoe resembling a scot's kilt also of monkey and ganet skins. Small tassels could be seen dangling from around the top of the bear shoe reaching his knees under which were white oxtails which hung to his ankles. He held a white shield with one black spot and carried only one assegai. Zulu tradition says Shaka then ordered the visitors to undress and put on blue monkey skins and ganet skins for themselves. Finn's record doesn't mention this. Perhaps he was embarrassed. Perhaps the storytellers got a bit ahead of themselves. Interesting either way. But the biggest shock of the day for the traders was the sight of a familiar face amongst the huge group of Zulu's present, Jackot Msimbiti. Farewell, in particular, was stunned. This former Robin Island prisoner, the Amatosa ex-convict who'd been left for dead on the St. Lucia beach and who had vanished into the reeds a year before, had somehow inveigled his way into Shaka's court. His new name was Llambamanzi, or Swimmer of the Seas, honouring his strange arrival. He had already secured a few wives of his own, and more importantly, he had Shaka's ear. Jacot Msymbiti, was living a charmed life and was providing Shaka with excellent intelligence he'd gathered while sailing with Farewell and King. Jackot knew a great deal about the English, about the Cape, and about how these new arrivals went about their military and economic business. Shaka realized how strategically important Jackot was in facing these arrivals. He knew intrinsically where a possible future threat. The plot was indeed thickening. What happened at this meeting and the next moves is for episode 93. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.